This episode of the Pushkin House podcast featuring Robert Chandler and Boris Jaluk in conversation was recorded live at Pushkin House on the 15th of January 2020. We start with Robert reading an excerpt from Gordon Peary's translation of Ivan Krylov's The Donkey and the Nightingale. It was the same song as she always sang, but every time she made it new. And this time she began in playful mood, as if to tease the other inmates of the wood with calls to mimic them. Such as the chink, chink of the chaffin. Wide spaced intervals they never manage, spanned by her with ease. And sudden runs and jumps that made you think of fingers skipping nimbly over keys or dancing among strings. Then changed her tone and dwindled to a muted, soft, and melancholy strain that seemed to come from further off as if the bird herself had flown to some dense, gloomy thicket to complain. Then as a flash stream rises after rain until it overflows its banks and makes a flood, <coughs> so all at once her music rose to such a rapid, urgent, a throbbing that seemed to come almost too close for comfort, like pulsing in the blood with someone loved beside you, sobbing as much for joy as pain. There was the good of trying to explain the music of the nightingale. They are bound to fail. Song without words. It spoke of what no words could tell and cast a spell on all the other birds. <coughs> the winds dropped and the grazing flocks and herds lay down and listened too. Carries on. I'll stop now. Um, and a short... Over. Yes. Well, Robert has already mentioned um, the great translation of Stanley Mitchell. Uh, I'll talk about it in a second, but first I'll say how I discovered it. Um, when I was an undergrad uh, at uh, UCLA in Los Angeles, um, I had by that time, I, I was born in, in the former Soviet Union, had some familiarity with Pushkin when I was a very small boy, and then rediscovered Russian poetry in my teens and, and read it in, incessantly. And almost immediately began to trying to translate it obsessively, um, but I also began to seek out translations that I thought had could convey some of the beauty that I sensed in the original, so that I can share these translations with my friends. And uh, one of the first uh, I remember as, as as an undergrad, one of the first uh, major undertakings I took as a researcher of translation was trying to find a good version of Eugene O'Neill. And the first one I discovered was by Charles Johnston, and it was good. Um, it was very good. I was very impressed. The second I discovered was by James Phelan, and it was slightly better, and I liked it very much. Uh, and then I, I found Stanley Mitchell's, and the fight was over. Uh, the verdict was in. This was the version of Onegin to read. Um, a little bit later, I realized that um, the, the work, which seemed so effortless on the page, was the product of, of great pain. And uh, I realized that after reading an essay of Stanley Mitchell's that was published in Cardinal Points, uh, a journal that uh, Robert and I now edit, um, and Robert will hold it up as an illustration. I'm just going to read. I'm going to read a little section of, of this essay um, about Stanley Mitchell's experience. Then I'll share one stanza of, of the translation. Um, Before translating Onegin, I had regarded my life as a failure because of the bipolar disorder, which nearly ruined me. I've composed the odd poem since my adolescence, but I never regarded myself seriously as a poet. Pushkin was my only teacher. 
Many years later, I tried, to ha I tried my hand at the first stanza, and still more years passed before the translation was born. Only here do I recognize, recognize myself as a poet. Verse that I had written before or composed after the translation cannot compare with it. Reading it through recently with a small group, I marveled at some of my lines. But that is not the main point. Since completing the translation, I know that I shall never have to feel a failure again. Repeating Pushkin's self-congratulation and finishing a piece of work, I said to myself, well done, you son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, and so to show you what he did do, I'll, I'll read just one stanza of, of, uh, from chapter six, uh, which combines the light and darkness of which he writes so movingly in the sesta. Let me glance back. Farewell, you arbors, where in the backwoods I recall days filled with indolence and ardors and dreaming of a pensive soul. And you, my youthful inspiration, keep stirring my imagination, my heart's inertia vivify, more often to my corner fly. Let not a poet's soul be frozen, made rough and hard, reduced to bone, and finally be turned to stone. In that benumbing world he goes in, in that intoxicating slough, where friends we bathe together now. So just a lovely piece of work. The last two lines with that wonderful line of uh, rhyme of slough and now in Phelan's version um, read if I recall inside that swamp where we now lie and wallow friends both you and I which is a <laughs> which is a rather deflated conclusion uh, to, to what is a really remarkably lyrical piece of work uh, and so um, for that I thank Stanley Mitchell who uh, uh, continues to inspire me and, and does not let my soul be frozen. Thank you. And um, before we leave Pushkin, um, I mean the, the lyric, Pushkin's short lyrics um, are the most, the most difficult of all to translate because um, most of them seem so simple and um, they you know, all too easily just somehow evaporate um, in the move between languages. And um, you know, the magic, the music of them really does very rarely survive. And I, I want to um, read just one of the eight-line poem of, um, of Anthony Woods which um, will be in this new Penguin Classics volume in a few months. So um, one of Pushkin's many poems about Petersburg. City of splendor, city of poor, spirit of grace and servitude, heaven's vault of palest lime, boredom, granite, bitter cold. Still I miss you, rather, for down your streets from time to time one may spy a tiny foot, one may glimpse a lock of gold. Um, the rhymes are very delayed in the poem. You have to wait four lines for them. You have to wait a long time for them cold to be met with the final gold. 
Um, just because he, he is a good translator and he's um, done a lot, especially recently. Um, we have included in this volume quite a number of translations by Peter France of um, Pushkin's contemporaries and predecessors, um, people like Bartushkov and Balatinsky. Um, but moving on to um, Lermontov, um, I think, um, you know, we're not, we obviously can't quote from everything, but I, um, I don't really think there are any, any doubt that um, you know, I absolutely, without reservation, I've always recommend um, the translation of A Hero of Our Time by um, Nicholas Pasternak Slater, who's here in the room. Um, you're, you're not supposed to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it I is, know. I mean, Lermontov doesn't seem that difficult, but actually, especially with the dialogues, you look at, you know, just compare any few lines of dialogue selected at random, and look, the other translations invariably seem very stiff. You know, just try reading them aloud, and they don't sound like people speaking. <coughs> you know, even the educated voices don't sound like people speaking, let alone the more peasanty ones. And, you know, Nicholas is doomed. Um, so, um, do you want to go to Google? Uh, yes, yes, sure. Um, uh, so, uh, and I, I just I'll say one other thing. I also look very closely at a very great number of translations of, of A Hero of Our Time, and yours very much is the best. Uh, Nabokov's, which is often sold simply because it is Nabokov's, is, let's leave it aside. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's, a, it's a little bit wooden when read out loud, uh, and that is the best I can say of it. Um, so uh, to move on to Gogol, uh, I, I want to recommend a book that is just, just now available. Very often, the best translations are either recent or forthcoming, and sometimes they're, they're quite old. In this case, it's very much a case of a recent translation. Just out one month, uh, a small but brilliant selection of Gogol's short stories, mostly uh, the uh, Petersburg period. Uh, but one short story from the Mirgorod cycle. So there's a bit of Ukraine here and quite a lot of Petersburg. It's an excellent introduction, I think, for the modern reader uh, to Gogol's whimsy and his, his uh, uh, dreary seriousness that then grades into whimsy and then back to seriousness again uh, in unpredictable ways. Uh, and this is, uh, this is by Oliver Reddy, uh, who, uh, who's a masterful translator. Uh, and it is in a series, uh, the Pushkin Press series of essential stories, uh, that will soon feature a volume by uh, Nicholas as well, a volume of Turgenev's stories, and I'm greatly looking forward to that. A larger volume of Gogol. Um, Chagall's illustrations to Dead Souls are, are wonderful, and um, I'm not a particular lover of Chagall myself, and I, um, I like these more than almost anything else of his work. Um, they're funny and gutsy and down to earth in a way that's um, not that often to be found in Chagall. Um, so Donald's wanted to um, republish, Donald Rayford wanted to publish these illustrations. And um, he realised that, um, I don't know, he originally set out to retranslate Dead Souls, but he um, couldn't bring himself to 
really published any of the existing versions, so he ended up doing one himself. So um, this book is still available from the Garnet Press, um, which is a, a wonderful volume, the Garnet Press is really good. Donald. Um, and, um, but it is um, without the illustrations, um, it is now published by New York Reviews Books as well. So um, that is the, I think, new translation of Dead Souls. Um, this is an opportunity to mention Constance Garnett. Um, there's been a, I think, quite vile fashion to, um, for being rude about Constance Garnett. Um, a lot of eminent figures like um, both Brodsky and Nabokov were constantly jeering at her, um, you know, making jokes about this writer called Tolstoyevsky because Constance Garnett made everybody sound the same and so on. And um, I mean, one of the annoying things about this is a lot of these people probably wouldn't have had jobs if it weren't for Constance Garnett popularizing Russian literature um, 100 years ago. Um, another annoying thing is that you know, she was a really intelligent, independent woman who was bringing, at that time, unknown writers to the English-speaking world. I only actually realized yesterday that you know, she had to fight to get Chekhov published in English. She, you know, it took her quite a few years to convince anyone this was worth doing. Um, you know, she was doing new work. Um, she wasn't just retranslating Chekhov once more. Um, very intelligent, independent woman um, who translated, of course one can find faults with her translations, but she translated quite a few writers well enough that people could see these are great writers. Well, that's the first, the first test. Yeah, and she, I mean, her work, her translations were important to, to Lawrence, to Virginia Woolf, to Kathleen Mansfield. You know, she was, she brought these writers into English intellectual life. May I say one thing about Constance, uh, very briefly? Um, we're on a first name basis. Uh, we recently <laughs> published a, a piece in the Los Angeles Review of Books in which a, a person who took it upon himself to translate a story of Chekhov's uh, thought that Constance Garnett had made a lot of mistakes until he tried to translate the story himself and realized that those mistakes were actually judgments that she had made in order to improve the text in English. They were conscious decisions without which the text falls absolutely flat. Um, and uh, he made this discovery because he was consulting with a native speaker of Russian and sending him versions of his translation. And they kept coming back marked up, marked up, marked up. And eventually they came back and uh, he's reading the story in his final draft, and then halfway through the story, it becomes very good. And he realizes that instead of marking it up, his native speaker had simply spliced in Constance Garnett's translation at the end. <laughs> so go back to that. <laughs> um, and there's a very neat little um, piece I came across um, where um, someone um, had the idea of just looking at the famous passage at the end of part one of Gogol um, about the Troika, about Russia, you know, rushing along like a Troika. And um, there's the phrase, there's the sentence, um, 
czudnym zwonem zaliwajce kalakolczyk. Kalakolczyk is the bell. Um, czudnym zwonem with a wonderful ringing. Um, zaliwajce, much harder to know how to translate it literally. So, um, four versions of this sentence. Um, Constance Garnett. The ringing of the bell melts into music. Nabokov. The middle bell trills out in a dream its liquid soliloquy. <laughs> Gurney. With a wondrous ring does the jingle bell trill. <laughs> Reeve, a bit better. The bells are tinkling and filling the air with their wonderful feeling. But, but wordly. Um, I have, sorry, I, I should have um, quoted Donald, but Donald's is actually, Don, Don, Donald's is fine. But the Constance Garnet, the ringing of the bell melts into music. Yeah. It's simple, it's lyrical. Uh, all the others just seem absurd yeah. in comparison. Um, you know, her translations are often criticised for being a bit sort of wooden, but <laughs> they have wooden moments, but capable of being very beautifully lyrical. And that middle bell is so typical of Nabokov, who just wants to show that he knows exactly which bell it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and I was also, before we leave Constance Garnet, I was also struck that, you know, I have heard her being sort of someone being, speaking patronizingly about sort of middle class women trying to translate uh, war passages in War and Peace, and lots of feeling. And um, so I was pleased to discover that um, Hemingway, of all people, you know, was um, not noted for his kind of feminine ways. Um, Hemingway said, I remember how many times I tried to, e to read War and Peace till I got the Constance Garnet translation. So yeah. Hemingway could live with this middle class woman. That's the rest of it. <laughs> um, so um, perhaps I should stay with Tolstoy and then go on to Dostoevsky. So actually, Tolstoy, um, who we use for the title, I think this is the, um, probably the writer who um, largely have the least definite um, recommendations. Um, Tolstoy isn't especially difficult to translate. Um, the Constance Garnet translation is good. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I spent the summer, much of the summer holidays, sort of reading War and Peace half in Russian and half, you know, had the Maud's translation and the original open side by side. And I was sort of switching between the two, sometimes reading both together, sometimes just reading the Maud's if I finished it half. And, um, and you know, it, it seemed fine to me. Um, I like Anthony Briggs's new version. Um, some people damn it because he translates the French, which you know, they think is um, terrible. Um, for me, that's a, you know that's a, a, legi a legitimate choice, even if it's not one I'd make myself. Um, so I do like that, but um, there are probably other translations that are equally good. Um, I think Boris and I do both. Um, single out um, Rosamund Bartlett's translation of Anna Karenina. Um, I think that is um, clearly better than 
than others. Um, there are quite a number of recent translations, good recent translations of shorter works by Tolstoy, um, and you know, including Boris's recent, very recent um, companion to the little Gorgon book um, of Ivan Ilyich and a few other short stories by Tolstoy. Um, so uh, it's probably quite enough if there's just yeah. Yeah. Dostoevsky. Yes. Um, in, in the case of Dostoevsky, I, I think that um, some of the novels are still awaiting translations that can do justice to the great polyphony um, uh, of, of, of those, those, the, those worlds that he built. Um, but uh, Crime and Punishment has been translated well several times. I'm going to highlight one translation, although there is another waiting for me, which I, with which I have not yet familiarized myself. Also by Nicholas Pasternak's latest again. But I'll, I'll read one passage from a translation by Oliver Reddy uh, uh, that was published by P P uh, Penguin uh, Press. And this is uh, a dream of Raskolnikov's, the, the flogging of the horse, which should be familiar, I think, to, to anyone who's read the novel. It's a very memorable scene. Um, I'll read the, the translation, and I'll point to a few choices that he has made. Daddy, Daddy, he shouts to his father. What are they doing, Daddy? Daddy, they're beating the poor little horse. Come on, boy, says the father. Just drunken idiots fooling around. Off we go, boy, don't look. And tries to lead him away. But he breaks free of, of his grasp and, quite beside himself, runs to the horse. But the poor little horse is in a bad way. She's struggling for breath, stops, gives another tug, and almost falls. Flog her till she drops, shouts Mikolka. She's asking for it. I'll flog her dead. Where's your fear of God, you mad beast, yells an old man in the crowd. What I especially like about this scene is that it flows perfectly from, from a, a powerful exclamation to a, a telegraphic description of action back to exclamation. And there's never a point where I think no, someone would not be able to say this in this situation. Every single phrase falls, falls into place. I'll give you an example of a few versions of this uh, uh, just drunken idiot spooling around that the father, uh, with which the father tries to comfort the child and drag him away. Um, the Russian is pyanaya shalyat turaki, very simple, but three distinct words. It's hard to get that into English. Constance uh, uh, Garnett's version is they are drunken and foolish. They are in fun. Well, that's aged uh, quite badly. I feel they are in fun. Um, they're drunk, playing mischief to the fools, David Macbeth. Not bad, but the pauses in the, the English strike me as more artificial than the pauses in the Russian. Uh, and I, I guess I'll quote uh, Fabian Volhonsky as well. They're drunk, they're playing pranks, the fools. Well, pranks is just not right at all, is it? I'm not gonna go into that. Um, but compare that with just drunken idiots fooling around. It's precisely what I can imagine the father's telling the child as he's dragging, dragging him away, or trying to drag him away. This dismissive, offhanded comment. The other, I think, brilliant choice is you mad beast for Lieshe in Russian. Now, Lieshe is a very difficult thing to translate. Uh, you cannot select one translation of this folkloric term, which sometimes serves uh, as a really folkloric description and sometimes simply as a mad beast. Here, I think, uh, uh, Oliver makes contextual choice that works perfectly perfectly well, you mad beast. 
Um, others, you know, uh, would insert you demon, for instance, or other translations. Demon may be a little too strong for this for this particular student. But, um, just a, a few a few good decisions made in a very key scene um, that I think recommend uh, that translation. And I will, as soon as we're finished, <laughs> I'll, I'll check it against yours. Something I, I don't know, I was a little taken aback by this. Um, but uh, in Moscow recently, um, a Russian friend pointed out how um, our general picture of the 19th century still is really based on what Constance Garnett translated. Um, the writers she didn't translate, like Yeskov, aren't well known. And I realized, and this friend of mine was a passionate admirer of Saltikov's Chedrin, whom um, I've yet to read. And um, I realized with some shame that I'd sort of somehow, yeah, quite unconsciously, I must have just assumed that because, because he wasn't someone I'd heard about sort of, you know, in my teens, um, because he wasn't well known then, and you know, I just sort of somehow assumed that he was kind of second tier, and you know, I could get by without him. Um, Leskov is the additional reason that he is actually difficult to translate. Um, so, um, just very briefly, um, there is we did um, one of the joys of um, editing this volume of short stories. Um, was finding a absolutely brilliant translation of Yeskov's greatest story, The Steel Three, um, where the punning, the malapropisms, the wordplay is as brilliant as the original. So, just to give you some idea of that, when this unfortunate um, craftsman who made The Steel Three, um, when he yeah, after a journey, a sea journey back from England to Russia, and um, he's just going to meet a miserable end. Um, he gets, you know, they don't recognize him. They, um, he's, um, no one's taking care of him. He gets left on the cold depravement, the cold pavement. He gets left on the cold depravement, and nobody's interested in him because he, he hasn't got a grasp port. Um, you know, they keep wanting, they tried to take him to, they take him from one hospital to another, but they, no, no hospital will take him in because he hasn't got a grasp port. You know, they want his documents. So that's, that's a much funnier joke than, the, than the, there is in the Russian um, grasp port because, you know, he's just arriving at, grasping for safety and putting himself in a port city as well as at so, so many levels. So that is brilliant. And um, we are, there will be a, um, another volume of Leskov from York View Books um, very soon, in sort of six months' time, which will be um, this translation. Um, four stories that Donald Rayfield has recently translated, and my translation of Lady Macbeth of Nsensk. Um, so, um, Briefly to again, yeah. Yes. 
what, what we're going to have to speed up because yeah. otherwise we're not going to manage the 20th century. <laughs> I'll make it quick with Turgenev's stories. Um, I very recently was asked to write an introduction to an older translation, an Oxford World's Classics translation, uh, published originally in the 1950s uh, by a woman named Jessie Colson, whose work I did not know at all. And I, I wasn't the person to choose this translation, but once given uh, the opportunity to look at it closely, I realized that this is a, it's, it, I'm not gonna call it a masterpiece, but it was a wonderfully sensitive rendering of Turgenev that built on uh, what Constance Garnett had done. Uh, and sometimes that is a possibility. One can improve just slightly here and there what's, what a, a master like, like Garnett had done and come out with a better product uh, and I wrote an introduction to that. That'll be out shortly. Uh, I don't think that there's overlap with <laughs> Nicholas Nicholas's uh, collection because these are all novellas, really. They're not short stories. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to Nicholas's version because I, I, if it's anything like his Chekhov, uh, it'll be a pleasure to read. Uh, also, uh, Fathers and Sons. No fewer than 10 translations. Garnet's remains my favorite. I do like very much the, uh, the Rosemary Edmonds translation. I think that is a, a fine mid-century translation um, and uh, uh, have used it to, to teach the novel. That novel survives, I think, survives translation quite well. Reavy also did a, a, a decent job, uh, but uh, as the quote that uh, uh, Robert shared from uh, Reavy's Gogol demonstrates sometimes it's a little fussy and, and, and uh, uh, convoluted, but uh, the, the, the Edmonds is, is very good. That's my personal sense. I think you won't, you won't have any trouble with uh, selecting to begin Sergeyev's novels in translation. Um, so jumping into the 20th century, which we'll do very cursorily, Obviously, the question that um, we get asked most often is um, with regard to Bulgakov, because uh, a number of um, translations of Master and Margarita is um, endlessly increasing. Every, every publisher has to have their version. And um, I think we're pretty much agreed that um, the, um, you know, the one translator who who really can write um, is um, Glenny. Um, that, you know, there are various minor drawbacks such as that he, um, he, he was making a living as a translator which is very difficult and that um, he was sometimes translating too fast and you know, now and again didn't look up things in dictionaries which he should have looked up. So he sometimes mistakes, you know, thinks that something is a bottle of wine when actually it's a bottle of mineral water, this kind of thing. And his version isn't from the final definitive text. Um, in an ideal world, someone would revise his translation and put right these minor errors. But, you know, he, um, his, his translation is rhythmically alive. And one can read it with, one can read it aloud with pleasure. And I can't say that of any of the other translations. Um, 
a lot of the other major writers um, aren't, you know, they are only available in one or two translations, or, you know, from just one. Um, so, you know, there isn't, um, isn't kind of discussion about that. Um, Pasternak and Dr. Zhivago, um, there's um, the first translation um, was done by Max Hayward, who's a collaborator. They're, you know, they're experienced, competent translators. Um, they were uh, working at immense speed because of the huge political furor over Dr. Zhivago and Pasternak being compelled to um, pressurise to refuse the Nobel Prize and so on. So um, they did greatly simplify Pasternak's poetic prose, but um, it's, um, it's readable. Um, the Pervia Volokonsky translation um, well, I, I can only say is that I find it unreadable. Um, there's a, um, a very neat little recent article in the TLS where um, they quote one sentence in... Um, could I have that leaflet? Oh, sorry. Oh, uh, oh it's here. Yeah. Um, they quote one leaflet. Sorry, one, one sentence... In um, firstly, Max Hayward, secondly, Pavier Volokonsky, and thirdly, um, this new translation by Nicholas and Maya Pasternak Slater, which is um, at <coughs> present only available from the Folio Society in um, a wonderful edition with um, reproductions of. Um, Paintings by Leonid Pasternak, the father of the writer, the father of Boris Pasternak. Um, it's it's very very expensive, um, and it'll be another what couple of years or so before it's available. For? I'm hoping this year. Uh, oh, this the year. end of the year, hopefully. Yeah. It depends when they sell out of that expensive oh. edition, which is going very well. Sold sort of 500 plus out of the 750. So. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear it. Um, and I'll, I'll just read this, um, this sentence in um, these three versions. So, this is um, from Natasha Randall's um, rather beautifully titled Root, Trunk, and Branch. Um, so, um, the first translation. Um, a heavy fragrance, motionless, as though having lost its way in the air, was fixed by the heat above the flower beds. Pervian Volokonsky. The stagnant scent of flowers wandering in the air was nailed down and motionless to the flower beds by the heat. It just seems bonkers, you know, it's not clear whether it's, whether it's the scent wandering in the air, you have to remain if you think it's the flowers wandering in the air. Nails down motionless. I mean, if it's nailed down, it's motionless anyway. And if it had the scent being nailed down, 
um, and rhythmically nailed down motionless to the flower bed by the heat. It's sort of it's too much of a bump at the end. And um, Nicholas and the Maya's translation, the fragrance of the flowers hung motionless in the air, tethered down to the flower beds by the stagnant heat. Um, and Natasha writes that this version captures a lyrical essence and a simplicity that the other two miss. Yeah. Simply written and absolutely true. And um, she ends she ends um, by um, quoting Boris Pasternak, who himself translated a great deal. The correspondence between the original and the translation must be that of a root and its derivative, a trunk and its branch. The translation must come from a writer who has felt the influence of the original long before undertaking his task. I wouldn't want to make that an absolute rule, but it's you know, certainly a few cases we've talked about, like Stanley Mitchell. Um, it must be the fruit of the original text. With Nicholas Pasternak's latest translation and the input of the Pasternak family tree, the paintings, Dr. Shivago has grown a branch with new green shoots. So, very nice ending to the um, good review. Um, so, I think probably, um, yeah, uh, I would like to just once again um, mention, because actually there are multiple translations in this case. Um, I have already mentioned Boris's translations of Isaac Boisville. Um, well, Boris is from Odessa. That isn't why he's a good translator. <laughs> I'm sure it helps a little yes, bit. Isn't it? Um, <laughs> and um, I do think that um, Boris's translations are well, they're verbally alive, they're witty, they're, they're you know, just the fun, the exuberance um, of Barbara is, is there um, infinitely more than in preceding translations. Um, so um, I strongly if, recommend those. If I may give some credit to, to Brian, who, who's sitting right there, who worked diligently as, as uh, an, uh, I would say an editor, although he would say copy editor, <laughs> on the translations. He's a, he's a wonderful reader uh, and a, a, a brilliant translator, and uh, I think those two go hand in hand. Um, um, and perhaps that's an opportunity to just mention that we're um, not discussing technicalities in the only English translations, um, but um, Brian Carrick has some, um, you know, there is a greater interest in any very writers now who are very much sort of forgotten about for several decades, and um, Brian's translated um, Gazdano, you know, a younger contemporary, a younger, younger emigrant. Jeffries and um, an anthology of uh, Penguin Classics of um, stories written in the uh, about Paris and the Grays. Um, so I'm sure I have left out something crucial important. Hopefully we can remedy that in, in questions. Um, so let's, um, yeah, questions. I, 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 I will be come across.
I have heard of it, and I have heard it spoken well of, but so that's all, yes. So this is the second time. Antonio. Um, do you think forms like that pop up? I mean, part mm -hmm. of this place being much mangled by many people who don't even know Russian. But um, can you say something about Chekhov's stories in translation? Um, I know at least two good volumes of Rosamund Bar well, Rosamund Bartlett has translated several volumes, I think, for Oxford World Classics. And um, I like those. Um, and I included one of them quite a long time ago in the in our Penguin Anthology of Short Stories. Um, Nicholas Pasternak Slater has translated a volume. Is it just one volume? It's just one volume. Yeah. The Beauties. Um, for, for Pushkin Press. Um, I haven't read Chekhov in the last few years, but um, I'm sure we'll be judging by the Lermontov translation, I'm sure that would be very good. And I have read it. It is indeed very good. It is, it's the volume I recommend to, uh, to anyone who asks me uh, um, uh, for an introduction to Chekhov's stories. Firstly, because it's such a beautifully produced little book, uh, like all of the Pushkin Press books, and it's a pocket size introduction, but it's also, I think, very well selected and, and exquisitely translated. And again, like, like most of the um, entries in this series, it's alive on the page. It really does sparkle. But then the difficulty of the That's the Turgenev. The Chekhov. Oh, I haven't, I haven't actually looked at Colson's. Yes, yes, I'll, I'll have a look at, at Colson's version as well. Yeah, I, and that may be worth bringing back into print. Uh, she, she was a very smart selector, I'll, have, uh, I'll say that. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think I'm sorry, repeating the um, translator for Bulgakov, Master Margarita. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Glenny. Michael Glenny. G L E N Y. He was a very prolific translator. And um, you know, academics are often critical of him because you know one can usually, if one reads a few pages, find some minor error to criticise. <laughs> uh, first Saturday now, so give the uh, translation of Chekhov coming out. But um, <laughs> you alluded to something about Michael Glennie and the fact that he was a good writer, and that made him a better translator. You could elaborate on that. If you've seen that, that I'm sorry, I didn't mean to give the impression um, that he wrote his own book. He's, you know, no, he's no, 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 I know, but I mean, he was a journalist as well, so I'm just trying to yeah. I just, I'm, I'm really just saying that he had an ear, mm -hmm. you know, um, whether or not that's linked to being, you know, writing his own voice as a journalist or not, I, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, he, he I just, Feel that he heard what he was, you know, the words that he was coming out with, and that's what I mean by him being a 
a good writer. And, and, and he wants to. Uh, well, that was my point. Do you find that a large part of whether a translator is good or not, or whether it's a good writer, not necessarily whether they get a sense of the original language and so forth, but actually going into writing? Well, obviously, it's. Uh, yes, I mean, having a, a wonderful sense of the original, if you can't bring it into good English, isn't going to get one very far. So, um, I mean, it's. It's quite rare. I can usually, if I'm looking at someone else's translation, if I'm, you know, say if I'm in a teaching situation, um, probably about ninety-five percent of the time, I can pick up errors of understanding just by looking at the English. You know, I can read the page in English, and there'll be some point where there's a non sequitur, something seems out of key something's wrong, and at that point I'll look at the Russian and, you know, very often unearth some misunderstanding. Um, I can do that with most people. Um, once or twice I had a mentee once who was a very gifted writer, and she could always come up, you know, if she misunderstood something, she would somehow manage to, you know, sort of slightly alter bits around it to make it completely plausible. Yeah. <laughs> I realised after a while that I did need to check every sentence that I against the original. Well, she's a mentee of mine, I don't really want to mention her by name. But I, I think what one of the one of the elements of a good translation is is you can tell whether the I first you can tell whether the translator has read this out loud and question whether this is sayable, even if it is avant-garde like Robert's translations of Platonov, uh, where we are dealing with a language that is warped uh, from its usual form. Um, but you can imagine this as a, co a complete world uh, in which the translator has dwelt. The whole book has been in one head, and it's come out in one piece. I think that's, that's something that the, the mentee was doing. She had absorbed the story, mistakes and all, and had produced a full story uh, with all the mistakes washed over, papered over, um, because it's, it was a coherent world, a coherent artistic vision. Um, so um, that's I, something I can do. Um, one, one I, just to say in my background, I've actually spent many years editing translations, um, and I worked on War and Peace more as a co-translator, but not the ordinary text. An early version that could be put together by somebody over 50 years piecing together the original manuscripts. But one of the pervasive problems for Tolstoy is his style. Mm -hmm. One of those particularities is the repetition. He repeats the same verb, the same word over and over again. There's a problem in English if you do that because some readers might think you don't know what you're doing as a translator. You have to trust the translator and you have to hope that the translator is conveying what was there. But if the thing jars in English, you, it's very difficult then to persuade the reader that this is what was really there. So there is this kind of torn loyalty between your source, your author, your inner original, and the readership. I'm just saying some of these problems, you can be a, a marvellous writer, but you're still stuck with some kind of stylistic 
idiosyncrasies that you have to respect or not? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I, I think you have to have your audience in mind and the fact that you're writing for a, an audience used to a certain degree of repetition or the absence of repetition. But where Tolstoy really drills down, find a way to do that uh, that is honest to what he's doing but works in English. And uh, I, I have had to look at a number of translations of Death of Vanerich recently and some people do it well and some people do it less well. Um, um, there's a wonderful line that, that I always use as an example of Tolstoy at his cruelest, at his most vicious. And he's describing the, the body of Ivan Ilyich um, uh, lying uh, on, on this uh, table, on display. And uh, in, in Russian, uh, rough, well, I can say, and it goes on. So this, this repetition of now how do you do that in English without well, hitting the dead man over the head. And, uh, um, you know, I've seen versions that translate Pamirtvetsky as dead man-like, which is not the same thing <laughs> quite. Um, and also that don't understand the link of what he's saying that this dead man is doing like a dead man. He's lying in a very heavy manner, in an unusually heavy manner that is usual for dead men. So stringing all of these elements together into a, a, a smooth sentence is a challenge, but it's one worth doing. And you can communicate the heaviness of the original, that which repetition establishes in the original, without losing your reader's um, uh, confidence. Can you um, give us your, your final version? The, um, the dead man lay as dead men always lie in the unusually heavy manner of dead men. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Can I add something? Yes. Uh, staying with the death of Ivan Ilyich um, uh, and repetition, one of the things that Tolstoy does in that story is he he stresses the name Ivan Ilyich yes. did this and Ivan Ilyich and um, it, it comes. I mean, it's a heavy name. Oh yes. In Russian, as well as in English. And it, uh, I mean, it, it's like a sort of thump, like a punch in your in, in your chest every time it comes. And uh, I, I don't know. I mean, in translating it, I repeated Ivan Ilyich rather than he and him. Oh yes, yeah. Um, you know, to achieve that same effect. Yeah. And and in some stories, it's not as important. In this story, it is very much important. I completely agree that because he is a, he is an entity, an identity that is being worn away. And the insistence on that identity throughout the story is part of the effect. And it's a perceptual process. You're supposed to be sort of inside, keeping on being assaulted by something yeah. that you can't actually get past. Exactly. And that's that's very Tolstoyan that you're yeah. the one perceiving, and he's not giving you anything more than you're allowed to see at that moment. Another another element is is uh, this is something that Russian translators encounter very frequently, and uh, is sometimes the measure of a good one of the measures of a good translator is how to work with tense, because of course Russian is kind of willy nilly; it goes from past to present uh, without much hesitation, and uh, or in the, in typical narratives in Tolstoy, he certainly does that quite a lot. In Ivanovich. I chose to smooth out the tense except for one key scene when Ivan Ilyich is pumped so full of morphine that he loses 
he loses um, track of time completely and uh, differentiation between days. And there, I chose to incorporate some of the originals uh, marked, especially marked, tense shift, uh, in order to, to bring that scene to life. Uh, but working with tenses, as Brian and I have often exchanged messages, what do we do here? <laughs> Is this, do we keep this or not? Um, um, it, it's, it's, it's a major challenge. Uh, well, I sometimes think that one of the problems with um, doing um, translations of Russian fiction is that a lot of it was produced um, in accordance with an aesthetic, which is very, very different from the one which operates in the English-speaking world today. I mean, today we, we very much admire useful writing. Mm -hmm. um, we like useful prose. Um, whereas throughout much of, it seems, uh, as far as I'm aware, throughout much of the history of Russian literature, there was a positive suspicion of um, musical writing, fine writing. And even a more kind of plain functional style was um, was um, it was considered appropriate to you know a writer who was trying to kind of change the world and solve all the problems of Russia and so on and so forth, engage with politics. Um, uh, so uh, do, you, I mean, do you think that's a problem that um, trying to translate um, a, a fictional prose? Which actually isn't trying to be beautiful and artistic throughout a lot of the time. I'm not, I mean, as an example, I mean, maybe, maybe this is not a very thing to say. But I, I'm currently read, um, reading um, Dostoevsky's Devils, Yesen. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I know my, my, my judgment of uh, the quality of Russian prose isn't particularly bad as a native speaker, but um, even on the basis of my limited knowledge, I mean, a lot of, a lot of Dostoevsky's prose doesn't seem to me like beautiful Russian. It's pretty, pretty functional, pretty basic. Uh, minimal, minimal description. Um, overuse of phrases like uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, rapid, Lots of repetition. Sometimes the, the grammar, the syntax seems to go a little bit awry. Which, within the context of the Dostoevsky novel, works very, very well. Yeah. But um, in terms of the kind of aesthetic that works within the world of English fiction, in the contemporary world, where you know, we, are, we, we like beautiful writing. Um, it seems to me that you could, you could translate Dostoevsky very, very accurately. It would strike a contemporary English reader as not, not, you know, not, 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 not a very good translation. This is probably the <coughs> problem with some of the articles about the Dostoevsky, is that every, every word you write in the fiction is dramatic in, in the mind of the characters. Yeah. It's how they think, it's not how the beautiful, omniscient writer writes. It's all dramatic, and, and so you get repetition, but colloquialism is not. That, that's part of what you require. I think that, that that's true, uh, but I, I think it is a balance. It's what you mentioned. I, we have to keep in mind uh, the expectations of the contemporary reader and, and find a balance between the two. How do we communicate uh, if, if the ugliness of the original does not strike the typical Russian reader as being especially ugly or, or especially messy, if it strikes the, the, the typical Russian reader as being average 19th century prose with its flaws and syntactic complexities, uh, then, then we have to deliver that to, to the Anglophone audience in a way that's honest to their expectation. I mean, I, I do want to talk in a general way about things I don't know much about. I don't know Dostoevsky all that well. The only work I really feel confident to speak about is um, 
they're extremely grand. And, um, well, I perhaps wouldn't use the word beautiful, but I think it's superbly written in that, you know, I can hear, I can hear this character's voice in, you know, the, the man, the character, the narrator really comes to life in, in every sentence um, of that book. So um, I, I certainly, whether or not that's the case with Right Through the Devils, um, I've never read Right Through the Devils in Russian, so I can't. I'm not going to pronounce on that, but um, at his best, Dostoevsky does know what he's doing with every word. At his best. Um, shall we go on to someone else? Yes. He's worked quite a bit on underread Russian authors. Um, who do you think is, are the ones who the West needs to know more, and who is going to join the canon in the near future? Meaning in the from the 20th century? Or? Either. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, certainly Leskov is a very great writer. Um, his language is much more inventive than any other 19th century writer, so that's why he's been a challenge to translators. And, um, well, I've mentioned Saltikov, Shedrin, and I, I actually only very recently, I've yet to look at it, but um, Charlotte Hobson, who I do have a high opinion of, she's written well in her own voice, she has actually translated, um, what's the main, um, what's the main novel by Sotokov, the story of the yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, no, not the color of your family, the other one. Yeah, story um, she has translated that, so that might be, um, that might be very good indeed. Um, well, from the 20th century, I mean, you probably know what, what my answer is, you can probably guess. Um, obviously, I obviously I think Platonov is one of the very very greatest of all Russian writers in any century. Um, Grossman, um, Tefi uh, is um, I keep marveling at so, um, what a remarkable stylist she is. Um, the sentence that we were talking about. This morning with Boris, a story that just begins like a sort of sentence from a guidebook. It's a woman who's about to um, install herself. And she's on her own because her husband's got delayed and won't be joining her for a few days. So she's um, going to this house by a mill. It's quite remote. Um, it's going to be very scary. Um, it's going to meet scary people. Um, people who it's not quite clear whether they're people or the water spirit um, about the um, and the, the sentence begins as if it's a sort of sentence from a guidebook something like just utterly dull you know it's 15 um, 10 miles from the railway station um, to the to the town and sort of things gradually start to degenerate it's woods and more woods and, and bogs and then you get the sort of rickety bridges and then the sentence just sort of completely degenerates at the end it breaks up she's becoming overcome by emotion so the sentence just ends with comma off words, um, 
Gush Dal Urz. Um, Gush, sort of back of the arm, Dal, somewhere very distant, Urz, horror. Gush Dal Urz, I mean, it's extraordinary. Um, utterly underestimated. Many, many Russian critics are pointing out. Yeah, yes, it's a superb writer, and Clara is more and more. And, you know, every time I reread her, I'm, I'm, you know, appalled at how much I failed to notice in previous readings. I always thought some of the Soviet writers from the later period, um, and when I say Soviet writers, I mean writers who um, lived and worked in the Soviet Union, um, and who were never much translated, because... Who are you thinking of? Um, people like Yuri Kazakov, Vasily uh-huh. um, Shushin. I know he was translated, but he went, uh, I think he, he, he never came out in kind of um, uh, academic university presses. He was never very. In fact, yeah, it probably should be. It's a good writer, certainly. And we did include one of his translations in the, the one of the translations of the stories. And there is a good American translation of an entire volume of Shushin stories. No, I do recommend it. It's translated simply completed there. And um, yeah, Chupin certainly is somebody. Um, I was, um, yeah, uh, thanks actually for reminding me because. Um, Someone from Penguin was asking just recently about sort of writers, you know, are there any writers who um, I thought should be brought back into print? And um, um, the, the, the one I mentioned to her was um, Vladimir's Vierne Ruslan, um, this kind of story about the gulag from the point of view of a guard dog, um, which is brilliant and very, very, it's very fun in its black way and very, very telling. But um, thanks for reminding me of Trupinov and I should um, write her again and mention, mention Trupinov. Because yes, you know, um, certainly it's, um, it takes, you know, it took, you know, how much time it took for the emigre writers to sort of get re- reassessed. And, you know, I think it's at a time when, um, you know, we're only just beginning to get over the idea that if if something was published in the Soviet Union, it can't be much good. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're only just beginning to get over that idea. I'm old enough to remember um, that, that particular period, and yeah. I, I, I can recall that quite a few so-called dissident novels were published by um, Mass Inkling and Mass Inkling, which I, 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 my, my opinion, they weren't very good some of them, um, simply because they were dissident novels and they wasn't got into political trouble. Yeah. Whereas on the other hand, you've got people like um, who spent their whole careers writing and working in the Soviet Union. And for that reason, they, 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 they never received that many, as much attention as some of the others. Oh, well, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. So thanks for reminding me about treatment of the special How about another MBA like Jagunizhi? Personally, I, uh, I don't care for him. I find him too. So, um, Nina asked about the, um, another. He lived in Paris, yes? yes yeah, yes. another Paris emigre, Rene um, who, you know, a lot of people do admire. Um, 
Uh, I just find them too so decorative for my taste, but perhaps I've read the wrong things or not. Well, is there any particular work of his you? I featured a, a trans translation of a small section of, mm -hmm. of this uh, remarkable response to the revolution of 1917 in a collection called 1917, Stories and Poems from the Russian Revolution. So there is a, a, a piece of it there. And the name is in a, your class. In, no, no, in a tra Peter Francis translation. Oh. And uh, that, um, uh, his later novels, the names of later novels are being translated now. One of them is available from the Columbia University Press Russian Library series, uh, Sisters of the Cross. Uh, and that, that's, uh, uh, that's available in, in a very fine translation, I think. Um, we should just say a word about the Columbia University Press Russian Library series. Um, it is very good. They are giving a lot of thought both to what they choose to publish and to getting the right translator for it. And um, you know, they're not just bringing out a 14th translation of Master and Margarita and so on. They are, you know, they're well, there's going to be an event here quite soon um, here in Pushkin House devoted partly to um, a translation they published of a 19th century woman writer, Pavlova, who has um, been neglected. Um, they do you know, the odd contemporary work. Um, they did Boris's translation of um, Zoshinko. Um, my translation of Platonov's plays, which is you know, the most difficult, um, one of the most underestimated aspects of Platonov's work, and plays are particularly difficult to, to sell. Um, so I'm grateful to them for that. Um, they really are. Um, I think I, I absolutely wholeheartedly admire everything about the Columbia University Press series, um, except that they have atrocious distribution. So you know, they don't actually. You know, which people are not getting to read these yes. books, but um, apart from that, they've got everything going for them um, over there. On that, I was interested in um, something I read to see what kind of grief you're giving when uh, the translation is commissioned and you're assigned to it, whether it's, as you've spoken about, seeing as a fit between you and previous translations that you've done, and or whether there's a specific grief that the Publishers trying to hit with the translation. So mm -hmm. I'm interested in people kind of having that. I think it's going to vary with every, you know, with every book. Really, um, you know, sometimes publishers approach trans translators with a, you know, very something very definite in mind. Sometimes translators make suggestions to publishers. Um, I mean, uh, I don't. Um, the Penguin short stories anthology. I did the Penguin classics. I think my original idea was to do an anthology of twentieth-century stories, but you know, we discussed it. And, this is what we eventually came up with. Mm. I don't really do. Do you have anything to? Um, no, I, I do think it varies um, 
uh, once you develop a relationship with the press, however, I think you know, they, they begin to trust your taste. You can bring projects uh, that you might have bad luck bringing to another <laughs> a press, and, and they'll, they'll be willing to take a, a gamble if they like what you've done. Um, uh, in, in my case, um, uh, it, it has been you know, repeated work for, for the same presses, uh, and usually what the projects they bring me are somewhat in line with what I have done before. I mean, there are presses that have very, very definite ideas, um, and Pirini Press are, are doing very well. They have a, you know, a clear ideas about simplicity and readability, and you know, no, no long sentences with lots of that clauses with dashes between things, so on. You know, very, very definite indeed about that, and they're entirely clear about it. Settled on. Uh, what is the title that you've settled on? Uh, love and youth, basically youth and love. Uh, and the, youth. Love and youth. Yes. Yes. Oh. Yes. Because, They're going with my pattern, uh, which is lives and deaths for Tolstoy, <laughs> <laughs> which is some a title I invented um, uh, uh, by request before I selected the stories, but it gave me a very clear sense of what I wanted to include as soon as it occurred I think to me. Love and youth does. Yeah. Does yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Of course, yeah, there's the love. Yeah. That's youth? Yeah, it's fabulous. I think she's a very fine writer, and she's well translated into English. And the reason that, that um, more women writers have, have not entered into our talk, partly, is that there aren't that many competing translations of, of um, especially recent women's writing. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the case of Petian Tolstaya, you have several volumes, um, all of them in unique selections, uh, sometimes translated by one person, sometimes by another, but unique selections. In the case of Ulitska, it's the same. Every novel is, is, is translated just the once. Nice. Uh, so, and the same with Pilevin and Sorokin. Um, and some of the 19th century women's authors who are now appearing in the Columbia University Press series, like like Karolina Pavlova and uh, um, uh, uh, Sofia Pashinska, who's a totally rediscovered figure. Um, uh, so there isn't much competition. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Nina. Rosina. Um, I included also his response to the revolution in 1917. Yes, Apocalypse of Our Time, also in Peter Francis' translation. Those two are wonderful companion pieces. I can see you have a definite taste, Nina. <laughs> 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 
Boris's volume titled 1917 is a, I do highly recommend it. It's a, got a lot of unusual pieces who may make going to be new to most English readers. Um, Jenny? Oh, I was only um, giving a, a bit more information about what goes on in the kitchen, as it were. <laughs> there are problems. Uh, some publishers don't like having the original words transliterated. They prefer you either to translate it or somehow, you know, if it's in italics, there are all these sort of fashions. Um, sometimes the word may not so suddenly someone who translators foreign word may or may not be allowed footnotes um, or a glossary. There are all these sort of decisions that get taken often by people who don't really know enough to know what they're deciding. Um, well, again, depending on the publisher. Yes, exactly. It's not generalised. Um, and then another thing would be the marketing people who may want a particular take on something, so they get a, a, a cover, with your, or it's out of your hands, once the text's gone, that's it, and you can't influence it, but they may want to put a cover on that's completely inappropriate. Um, it's very difficult to control those sorts yeah. of things if you're not inside the publishing house. I speak as a freelance, but um, you you just find these things happening out of your control. So that, um, but those are the sorts of things that come between the person with the dictionaries and the computer. Yeah. But again, every publisher does do things differently. Yeah. So, you know, so some publishers are have had input over covers. Some they absolutely haven't. Yeah. It's the general um, publishing, if not law, certainly common practice in a contract with a translator or author or translator that the cover decision on the cover design will be with the publisher. And sometimes the translator or an author has the right of consultation. Yes, but you're talking about legal things. I mean I'm talking about what happens. Some of my editors have asked my opinion about covers. Some haven't. Of course I'm not going to expect to be able to overrule an editor. What I'm hinting at is that the, the, the translators and authors might get together in their unions and uh, change the habitual yeah. clause on it. Well, the, that's the a nice idea. idea. That's yeah. 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 I'm looking around the room for final questions. Saying that they, they subscribe to what to me is an odd notion of translation, whereby they think that an authentic translation is one which um, doesn't just doesn't try to kind of disguise the strangeness of the original language. The, the idea is that you're trying to re reproduce the original rhythms and structures of the language that you're translating from, um, and. Um, I think the idea is if, if, if the result in English sounds strange to the English reader, that merely serves to, 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 to give them insight into the strangeness of the language and the, and the literary culture that they're trying to. Well, I mean, that isn't so bonkers an idea in itself. But what's, what's, what's crazy is that they don't understand that um, the difference between, you know, I mean, what is a standard idiom in Russian um, 
they will often translate absolutely literally, and it may be incomprehensible to an English reader. So it's you know they they um, they have no idea of the they don't think about what is marked or not marked in the original. Are you familiar with that? Um, Philosophy translation, if you like. Well, yes, I know what they say. I mean, some of their prefaces, um, I mean, their preface to some of their, to some of their Dostoevsky translations, um, are, you know, they're very nicely argued, they're very plausible, they're very um, intelligent sounding. I think that's probably why um, so, so many academics praise their translations at the beginning. Um, but they just aren't borne out by the practice of what they do. Because, you know, a sentence that may sound perfectly normal to a Russian reader um, in, a, in a, a literal translation can, can, sound totally, can sound totally bizarre to an English reader. Um, I, I'll take this opportunity to introduce another author whom we haven't mentioned, but said we would, uh, uh, Bunyan, Ivan Bunyan, another emigre author who, is, who has not been translated well uh, in large numbers, but there is one excellent translation of the gentleman from San Francisco uh, by, um, that is a co-translation by a Russian speaker and D.H. Lawrence. And in that case, and this is something that we discussed long ago, Robert and I, that some of the decisions that Lawrence makes to reinstate Russianisms uh, in, uh, in the, uh, the story um, would perform some of the theory of Favir and Bolohonsky but they, but he does it with great artistic judgment rather than just, you know, carte blanche. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and the phrase I'm particularly thinking of is, uh, 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 should I share it or will you find Please it? Please do, I'm trying yeah. to find it, but you, you, you carry on speaking. Uh, th there is a wonderful scene in the gentleman from San Francisco of, of, of this is on a, a very stately cruise ship and uh, the uh, fine ladies are descending a staircase into the ballroom, which is a mirrored ballroom. And the verb that Bunyan uses, uh, uses is uh, which is just, you know, they are reflected in the mirrors. But uh, the, the translation that occurs is reflecting themselves in the mirrors, which is so perfect, although it is, of course, a, a kind of a too literal translation out of context, but in the context, when we understand what these ladies are doing, they really are <laughs> reflecting themselves. Yeah. That is a, a beautiful example of um, Katilyansky, the, the first translator, um, was, you know, obviously a, clearly a very, very gifted man indeed, but he'd, um, he'd come to this country, I think aged about 20, so he was, you know, he's, um, he was too old to really be able to quite write in English. But he would um, do these, you know, very thoughtful versions, which, um, you know, sometimes he quite often gives sort of three choices of different adjectives and so on, which um, he would um, pass on to D.H. Lawrence, and D.H. Lawrence, to my mind, had a almost unerring judgment about, you know, distinguish, distinguishing between Russianisms that were expressive and interesting and poetic and Russianisms that were just pointlessly odd or incomprehensible. 
and um, the editors are the latter, and um, so they, they they published a, a joint translation and um, in a magazine, and then this was further edited by Leonard Wolf. So this is a, you know a translation published by three people, and uh, the final version is is better still. And um, yes, um, Katulianski's um, his other great gift is that he was probably about the only man who actually stayed friends with D.H. Lawrence <laughs> throughout his lifetime. Lawrence quarrelled violently with most of his friends. And um, yes, Katulianski certainly um, talked about Rosenov and other people to Lawrence. So he's rather an important figure in, in the fringes of Bloomsbury and people like Lawrence. Um, not particularly. I mean, there isn't a lot of issues with competing translations with Solzhenitsyn. There is more than certainly more than one of Ivan Denisovich, and um, I do think highly of Harry Willits. Um, who's translated, he also translated um, at least parts of the, the Red Wheel. Um, I forget what else he did. Um, Sholokhov, uh, it, um, do, you want, do you want to answer that? With Sholokhov, there, there is a, a, a good translation which is out of print, not currently in print, of, of, of uh, Quiet Close the Dawn. Um, and uh, I think that there may be a new one in, in the works. The trouble with the old translation is that it exists, it's the same translation, but it exists in a, in, in a variety of editions, and some of the editions are heavily cut. And uh, Sholokhov himself, of course, constantly edited the work for political reasons as, as he aged, and so the later editions of an older translation may be cut to fit the new official Soviet version of of, of the book. So I would say if you can find a good 1940s or 1950s translation of the first parts of, <laughs> of uh, Quiet Close the Dawn, uh, that would be closer to his vision. And it was, it was well rendered. By I forget the, the man's yeah. name. I forget the, the, the man's name, but he, he worked under a pseudonym. He was, a, um, a, he was a, a, a diplomat who worked under a pseudonym. I just can't quite remember his name. And what publisher is uh, it was, uh, maybe doing a new version? Uh, I, I think that um, Pegasus, which published a uh, biography of Sholokhov recently, a very good biography that's very much worth uh, worth reading, um, uh, I think they they are considering a translation by the biographer. But I'm not. But I'm not. Uh, okay. I'm not certain where the, that project stands. Yeah. Also, Bielin. Oh yes. Uh, Sorry, what was it? Petersburg. Which was um, originally translated, well, it was originally translated by some, I think, Bernie or somebody, and then it was translated by two people in mm -hmm. America whose names have gone for the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was another version brought out by Penguin, which I thought less effective. Yeah. And I think they've now gone, somebody's gone back to putting back into print the 
the two, John Dobbin and Ed. But anyway, it was, it was very good and it had a good <coughs> uh, because it's very, very um, elusive, many, many references that need footnotes. So it's got footnotes as well, which don't interfere with the text. Is that the Maguire, I believe? They, they yes, yeah. one of them is called Maguire yeah. too. Them, yes, uh, that was that was a very good translation, yes. and I'm glad I'm glad to hear that it's coming back into print. Well, it's I don't think they're intending. Uh, yeah. They had I think I don't know if they're going to replace yeah. part one, but they I think it's been republished as a Uh I know that uh, the the first translation was by John Cornos, uh, oh, yeah. who who was a, a hit and miss translator, but had had a good sense of style and um, uh, really understood Bela's style, I think, but made many many mistakes. Uh, so the Maguire translation, Maguire is also a skilled uh, stylist, yeah, I think, and it was very, very good. And, yeah. and humorous, I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well. Okay, so um, thanks very much. Um, there's a few, um, just before, um, there's um, Anthony Wood has brought in, this is a, a, a volume that's been around. A while it will be in these works, probably a bit revised, will be in the, the new book. So that's for sale downstairs. A heretic for the painting. An heretic. Okay. Thank you. Anthony, very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pushkin House podcast, brought to you by the UK's oldest independent Russian cultural centre. This episode was edited and produced for Pushkin House by me, Rafi Hay. Our thanks to Robert Chandler and Boris Jeliuk. For more archive events, please subscribe to our podcast or check out our YouTube channel.